Good morning to you. I was introduced earlier, but for those who may not have been here at the time, I'm James Finch, one of the elders at Christ Fellowship Church uh, in Birmingham. And so um, I am, it is my pleasure to be here with you again, was here last in December. Uh, my wife was not here at the time, but she's here today. She had a little bit of a accident uh, right about that time, so she couldn't make it here. Uh, my daughter's here again, uh, my son and my sister is here this time, and um, I just want to thank Pastor Corey for the opportunity to come here again and worship with you all through the Word. So our sermon text this morning is Joshua 7, Joshua 7. Now I'll be reading from the ESV, but I think you are too. Is that right? So we should be on the same page. Again, Joshua 7, beginning at verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'll be preaching today uh, from the title, Breaking Faith. So let's, let's pause here for a second and pray as we move forward here. So Father, teach us what you have meant by what you have said, O Lord, that we may be changed that we would not break faith, but hold to you, fast to you, as, as you have called us to do. Lord, this is your work, and we submit to it. We need your help in this moment and forevermore. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So again, our sermon title today, Breaking Faith. Beloved, what is faith? Here's one definition. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. Therefore, faith is the assurance of something yet to be received, the conviction about something yet to be seen. Let's dig deeper. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Another way to say it is like this. Faith is necessary. It is necessary. Faith is believing that God lives. Faith is believing that God knows. Faith is believing that God makes righteous judgments. Faith is believing that God provides what is ultimately best Despite the circumstances. Such faith is a miracle. Faith is surrendered to the notion that God, though invisible, is real and active and providential. Faith says God is at work in every aspect of our lives, small and great. Faith says God will do what is best for himself and for his people 
even when present reality suggests otherwise. Faith is assurance and conviction that God is present when killers invade grocery stores and schools and houses of worship. In the face of such realities, it's a miracle to hold fast to him and believe that he has not abandoned us. Faith is believing that nothing is random, that all of life's patterns are upheld by God's hand, that getting out of bed in the morning is not a matter of your will, but of God's will, that seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching are a daily provision from the Lord for those who have those five senses. Faith is fascinated with the change of seasons from summer to fall to spring to winter. Faith says it's only by the grace of God that people stay in their driving lanes. Faith sees a flat tire, a broken washing machine, a leaky roof as something God is doing versus a random annoyance. And I smile at my sister because she and I are dealing with all of those things right now. Faith remembers and clings to the promise of reward when life brings disappointment, personal failure, criticism, bullying, racism, slander, and physical and psychological pain. If that is faith, then what does it mean to break faith? Breaking faith, beloved, is to abandon the miracle of belief. Breaking faith is the opposite of everything I just said. Breaking faith is God as concept versus God as person. Breaking faith is life is random. Breaking faith is the sovereignty of God over the sovereignty of man. Oh, I should say that backward. The sovereignty of man over the sovereignty of God. Breaking faith is eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Breaking faith is get all you can for yourself on this side of the grave. Breaking faith is what every one of us has been doing since the Garden of Eden. It is what we have been tempted to do every day. The world, the flesh, our flesh, and the devil have a consistent message. Break faith with this God. He can't be trusted. He has abandoned you. He is somehow fed up with you. There is no hope for you. Only you can do for you. And so when we look at Joshua 7 today, I believe that is the primary issue. When God has repeatedly demonstrated his love, will you trust him? Will we trust him? Or will we break faith? The book of Joshua is a recorded history of Israel's conquest of land promised to Abraham. The promise to Abraham came 685 years before it was realized. So if you take where we are today in 2022 and you subtract 685 years, that takes us back to the year 1337. That gives you an idea of the distance between a promise and the delivery of the promise. 
The fact that Abraham believed the promise is a miracle. At the time, he's an old man with a barren wife, and he's told he's going to be the father of a great nation, and that somehow that nation would be a blessing to, quote, all the families of the earth. Genesis 12, 3. He's told the prelude to the promise is persecution. That his offspring would be slaves in a foreign land for about 400 years, during which time the land of promise would be filled with the wicked activity of the nations that occupied it during that time frame. Then at the proper time, God would act, redeeming Abraham's offspring from slavery, bringing justice against the injustices of the land, and providing that land for his people. Faith in the promise was a miracle. For, as it is written, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6, and that's Romans 4, 3. Hundreds of years after God's promise to Abraham, Joshua, where we are in this text, is now leading the second generation of God's people who have come out of slavery in Egypt. These people are children of rebels. Their parents had broken faith with God repeatedly. They had cried out to God in the misery of their slavery, but then cried out against God in their freedom. They had seen God's miraculous provision. They had failed to hold fast to him. Believing God was against them and not for them, that slavery was better than what God could offer in freedom. Like their parents, these children of rebels saw God's wondrous works. So if we were to backtrack in the book of Joshua, we would see that in Joshua 6, the previous chapter, they saw God do a miraculous work at Jericho. You know the story. God made the fortified walls of a city fall, giving them victory. In Joshua 3 and 4, they saw the recreation of what had happened at the Red Sea. God pushed back the waters of the Jordan River and allowed them to cross that river on dry ground. In Joshua 2, spies from Israel were protected by a prostitute who gave testimony of how the miracles of God from Egypt forward had convinced her people that they were doomed. They were old enough to have eaten the manna from heaven, that miraculous food that fed families for 40 years. Maybe some were even alive for the Passover in Egypt, the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, alive to see the smoking mountain and hear the thunderous voice of God in Exodus 19, alive to see what happens to rebels who break faith with the true God and build a God of gold. Alive to see what happens to those who complain about water and food and power and position. Breaking faith is nothing new to these people whom Joshua is leading. Neither is the call to put trust in God's commands. Now, concerning Joshua 7. We see the command of God in Joshua 6. So I'm going to ask you to turn back in your Bible, maybe a page or so, and we're going to look at Joshua 6, and we're going to see what God says to Israel as they are going into the miraculous victory at Jericho. So 
look at Joshua 6, beginning at verse 16. Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. He's referring to Jericho. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So here's an explanation of the order for you. At Jericho, there are things devoted to the destruction and things devoted as holy to the treasury of the Lord. So number one, things devoted to destruction. What are they? All persons, but Rahab and the family in her house. All things, but silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron. Number two, things devoted as holy to the treasury of the Lord. Number one, silver and gold. Number two, every vessel of bronze and iron. So look back to uh, Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. It is evident that Achan has violated God's clear command. But perhaps nobody else knew it except God. And this is how God shows that the sin of one man, Achan, can affect the whole congregation. So that is found in verses 2 to 5, and I'm just going to summarize that. We're not going to read it, I'm going to summarize it. So in Joshua 6, we had the Battle of Jericho, miraculous victory. So fresh off that miraculous victory, the people are confident. The city of Ai is the next target. Joshua sends a reconnaissance team to Ai. The team reports that Ai is lightly populated and recommends sending only about two to 3,000 troops to conquer it. Joshua sends 3,000 troops against the city. 36 of them get killed. The rest flee in shame. Israel's confidence is sacked. Breaking faith is about to become a reality. Now let's pick up in verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? Oh, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? We should know that Joshua, leader, mediator, the new Moses, 
is himself beginning to break faith with the Lord. This is what he says in verse 7. I'll just reiterate it. Why, O Lord, are you seeking to destroy us? Translation. You seem to be plotting against us. Also in verse 7. Maybe it would have been better to stay on the other side of the Jordan River. Translation. Maybe that generation that thought it was better to go back to Egypt had a point. So, beloved, what does that say to us today? It as I would see it as at least a warning that breaking faith is an ever present challenge, even for the strong, even for the leader. None of us is immune. If only we can anticipate. Think about this. If only we could anticipate every challenge and brace ourselves against that magnetic pull toward unbelief. Wouldn't that be nice? But we can't. After the miracle at Jericho, Joshua could not anticipate that bloody defeat would come so quickly. Joshua is the leader and the mediator. He is the man of God, but he is not God. Joshua cannot invade the thoughts of men and see how they plan to act upon their desires. He could not see that one man, Achan, bringing sin upon the whole congregation like Adam in the Garden of Eden. And how does God respond to Achan? Or I should say, how does God respond to Joshua? How does he respond to Joshua? Well, there's some good news here. Back in the first chapter of this book, and I'm, don't turn there. I'm just going to read just one line, one line. So back in the first chapter of this book, God made a promise to Joshua. Okay? This is Joshua 1.5. This is what the Lord said. He said, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Blessed God. So how does God respond to Joshua's lapse of faith? With tough mercy. So look at verse 10. God clearly expects more from Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. There's an exclamation point there. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their back before their enemy because they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless, unless, this is the mercy, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. God says, why are you accusing me of plotting against you when I have provided for you? You, Joshua, should know that sin is in the camp. I have been faithful to my people, but my people, they have not been faithful to me. So now the Lord plans to reveal to Joshua and the nation what he already knows. That one man's breaking of faith has led to the death of 36 troops 
and congregational shame. In verses 13 to 15, the Lord tells Joshua to tell the people that judgment is coming in the morning. So look at verse 13. The Lord says to Joshua, get up, consecrate the people and say, that is, say to them, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Then look down to verse 15. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Now, at this point, Achan knows, Achan knows what that God knows what he has done. But we don't get any insight into what he's thinking as the overnight hours pass and judgment day comes. I could assume that Achan is worried. But maybe he thinks that somehow someone else had done what he did or even worse. So maybe that person would be identified by the Lord and killed rather than him. Now, you may be asking the question, why is this level of punishment even necessary? Because, because if faith says the clear instruction of the Lord is good, then God would be fair and just to punish those who repeatedly reject what he clearly says. All of Israel, including Achan, knew that God had already made provision to forgive unintentional sin. Unintentional. So I'm going to ask you now to turn back to the book of Numbers real quick. It's a kind of a long passage, so I want us to look at this together. Okay, turn back to the book of Numbers, chapter 15. Numbers, chapter 15. And we are going to begin at verse 28. Numbers chapter 15, verse 28. We'll read this together and we'll go right back to Joshua, okay? And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native of the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or sojourner, reviles the Lord and has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. The clear instruction of the Lord. 
So there's a difference between making a mistake and what the Lord calls high-handed sin. High-handed sin is rejecting and despising the Lord's clear instruction. The ongoing practice of sinning. High-handed sin is breaking faith with the Lord, believing that the word of the Lord is not for you but against you. High-handed sin is what we have been doing, as I said earlier, from the Garden of Eden. Rejecting God's provision, thinking we can do better for ourselves. So let's turn back to Joshua 7. When the next day comes, the process of elimination begins. The Lord has already set up a process uh, uh, as to how he's going to reveal the culprit, the sinner. So verses 16 through 18 show how the Lord goes from evaluating all of Israel to one tribe, to one clan, to one household, to one man. And if Achan had any hope that somehow someone else had done the same thing or even worse, that hope is gone. Look at verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise. And if you if you have an ESV, you'll note that they have a little alternate translation uh, on a footnote. Give praise or or make confession to him is another way that may be said. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So recall the Lord's commands to them going into Jericho. There are things devoted to destruction. There are things devoted as holy to the treasury of the Lord. So Achan violated the order in two ways. Number one, Achan took a beautiful cloak that was dedicated or devoted to destruction. Number two, Achan took silver and gold that were devoted as holy to the sanctuary of the Lord. Now I'm preaching today from Joshua 7 for at least two reasons. Number one, it was part of my yearly Bible reading plan recently. Okay, but here's the second reason. Somewhere in the mid-90s, the preaching of this passage changed my life. So I was in the military, and I think I shared that story the last time I was here. Not this story, but the fact that I'm a, um, a Marine, not active duty. Uh, but I was living in South Carolina, and I was a reawakened Christian. Uh, I had been discipled well by some friends overseas. And some of my friends in South Carolina led me to this little country church in the sticks. Now, the size of the sanctuary was nothing like this. It was very claustrophobic, and it was not built for the volume of noise that they put into that place every Sunday. And fortunately, or I guess I should say maybe unfortunately, I was used to loud noises. So the preacher takes up to the podium, and Joshua 7 is his sermon text. 
And the theme of the day was the accursed theme. The accursed theme. Now, he was using the King James Version of the Bible, so those words, accursed theme, replace what we see today as those things devoted, okay? The accursed thing, he said. And I can still remember as it felt like he stared right at me and he said, do you have the accursed thing in your house? Now, I had to search myself at the time. I thought to myself, do I? You know, maybe I do. Let me think, let me think about that a bit. And I was unsettled. You know, I had purged, I would say, a lot of things from my life by that time. Things that were not healthy. And I didn't have a problem with doing that because I felt that it was by God's grace uh, that he revealed those things to me. As Pastor Corey said earlier, search me, O Lord, and reveal those things that are, you know, grievous to you. It was a joy at that time to give up worldly things. For the sake of Christ, I think about what Paul says in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's Philippians 3.8. But at the time, I remained unsettled. So we went to lunch after church, drove back to my military barracks. And I just kept thinking, there's something else that I need to purge. So in my rebellious years, I listened to music that was not healthy. Now, I'm not up here to draw a line in the sand uh, that says that if it's not Christian, it's not good. Okay, I do believe that there is secular music that is good, that is healthy, because it holds to values that I think God would support, that he holds up as good. But my taste in secular music included some lyrics that I knew God would despise. Like I had to ask myself the question, if do I really want to be listening to this when Jesus comes back? Now, I had already stopped listening to that music But it was still in my library of CDs. Uh, If you know what a CD is, I think most people in this room do, okay? They came after, you know, records uh, and cassette tapes. So with with those words, a cursed thing, still ringing in my ears, I called through my library of CDs, and I pulled out anything that was not spiritually healthy. Like, even if there was one song. Uh, on the CD that was not spiritually healthy. I, I, I pulled it all out and I thought to myself, you know, I spent a lot of money on this stuff. Maybe I should give it away to some of my, my, my buddies. And I thought, I mean, how can I give this away? This is like giving candy to a man with cavities or dope to a dope head. So out came the contractor bag. I dumped all those CDs in the contractor bags. I jumped up and down on it to break up the CDs and I threw it all into a dumpster. Now here's a question for you. Was that the best application of that sermon? Maybe so. As I said, the preacher had an impact on my life. He focused on the accursed thing. And that still resonates for me today. I mean, I'm standing here telling his story. It's true, beloved, that there are things in our lives that need to go. Think about it. 
Just like the command of the Lord in Joshua 6, there are things in our Christian lives that are devoted to destruction. There are things in our Christian lives that are holy and devoted to the treasury of the Lord. Now, when it comes to things devoted to destruction, we could only boil it down to unhealthy lyrics or pornography or booze. But there's a bigger issue. When it comes to things devoted as holy to the treasury of the Lord, we could boil it down to our money. But there's a bigger issue. For the Christian, the biggest thing devoted to destruction is the old self with all of its desires. For the Christian, the biggest thing holy and devoted to the treasury of the Lord is the new self and its affection for Jesus Christ our Lord. It is the old self that is continually seeking to break faith with the Lord in so many ways. It is the new self that is fighting to hold fast, hold fast to the Lord's promise that he's for us and not against us, regardless of what life brings. As I think about Achan, I am somehow impressed with the language of the confession. Look at verse 20 again. Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. But this day is the day of judgment, Achan. It has already been decreed. Just like that great and terrible day to come when all the secrets of man, every one of our secrets are to be revealed. And for those who are not in Christ, all hope for redemption and reconciliation are lost. In the final paragraph of Joshua 7, that includes verses 22 through 26. Joshua verifies Achan's confession. He sends a team out to look to see that what Achan has said is true, and the people obey the Lord's command. So look at verse 25. And Joshua said, Why did you, Achan, bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today, and all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Achan's sin brings death to himself, to his household, and to those 36 troops who died in combat at Ai. In this way, Achan is a type of Adam. One man's trespass brings sin, that is, death, to many. But Achan's death also gives us, us, uh, I would say, a snapshot into something else. The wrath of God is satisfied with the death of Achan. In this way, Achan becomes an unwilling propitiator. He is He unwillingly 
bears the wrath of God for the nation. Achan suffered justly for his high-handed sin. In the history of Israel, his name is actually synonymous with trouble. So hundreds of years after this incident, hundreds of years after the conquest, during the times of the kings of Israel, this is how his name is recorded. Quote, the son of Carmi, Achan, the troubler of Israel, who broke faith in the matter of the devoted thing. That's from 1 Chronicles 2.7. If Achan's death is a type of substitutionary death, it's insufficient. Even though the nation would go on to capture Ai, see chapter 8, verse 1, and God's promise that they would do that. Even though they were go to go on and capture Ai, they would continue to rebel in the book of Joshua. They would not fully obey God's command to purge the land of those who had committed atrocities in the land. They would later fall into all kinds of sin, the same kinds of sin of the nation's had done before them. So let's think about this. What our Bible, your Bible in your hand or your device, which is a Bible, what the Bible repeatedly does is show us that the activity of man alone is insufficient to defeat our sin problem. It's insufficient. And that is why Jesus had to come. In his life, Jesus did no high-handed sin, didn't even make a mistake. But as it is written, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus became the once and for all time propitiator of the justifiable wrath of God. Indeed, he was a willing participant, for he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Romans, uh, that is Philippians 2, 7 and 8. At the cross, this Jesus shed his precious and innocent blood. For neither the blood of sacrificial animals or Achan could satisfy what the whole world needed and still needs, a solution to our sin problem. If you believe, if you in this room believe in Jesus as Lord in Christ, it's a miracle. Many agree with the historicity of Jesus. But debate what he accomplished at the cross. Faith says that each of us, like sinful Achan, had a debt of sin that couldn't be paid. But Jesus, through his bloody death at the cross, took that record of debt and the just punishment and put it to his account. Faith says Jesus rose from the dead. Just as we just sang. Christ is risen from the dead. We sing that, are we, are we pondering what happened in that moment? Faith says Jesus rose from the dead, giving us the power to fight 
fight high-handed sin and giving us grace for our mistakes. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of such faith. And this is really, really, really good news. Have you received it as such? For the Christian, we know that the Lord has promised to keep us from breaking faith. I think about the lines to Joshua, those beautiful lines, Joshua 1.5. I will never leave you or forsake you, Joshua. The Lord has promised to keep us from breaking faith. And at least one way that God does that is what we're doing right here today. Being together. Reading and hearing, singing, praying the word. Discerning what God has meant by what he has said. Heeding the warnings from the life of Achan, who thought he could hide sin under dirt. Trembling at the ease at which Joshua moved from trusting the Lord to distrusting the Lord. The means of not breaking faith are by God's design. Don't resist it. Trust it. As it is written, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4, 8. We should pray every day that he would do whatever it takes to keep us with him. Let us pray. So, Father, we come before you now in the name of the exalted son, Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Lord, if we are to hold fast to you in a crazy world, oh Lord, you must keep us. We cling to your promise. We choose to reflect on your wondrous works that you are providential, sovereign in all things, and that you have promised to do us good in the life to come, O Lord. We focus our minds on eternity right now, understanding that there is life beyond the grave, that every man has an eternity, whether for good with you or for torment in the lake of fire. O Lord, keep us. Keep us, O Lord. We need you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.